Well, good morning, Sagemont. It is so good to be with you guys today. Um, I've been on vacation for the last couple weeks. I uh, was with my family and with my wife. It was amazing, but I missed you. And it is good to be back with you today. I wanna take a second and thank uh, Pastor Stewart. And I wanna thank Dr. Autry for preaching the last two weeks. They did a phenomenal job. It's so good to be able to go on vacation and know that the church is in good hands in the pulpit and they did a fantastic job. So thank you guys for doing that. Um, next Sunday, church, we're gonna be live. You'll hear more about that in the announcements, but uh, we're coming back and we're gonna be together next Sunday, live here at the church. I believe it's at 9.30 and 11.15. And so we look forward to seeing you there. You'll hear more information about that this week. But um, wanna go ahead and invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter two, it's the last book of the Bible. And uh, we'll get there in just a second. In two weeks, we're gonna begin a series where we're gonna be looking at the core values of Sagemont. Um, at some point here in, in, in probably this semester, at some point, we're gonna jump into a book of, of the Bible and, and dive into that together and go verse, verse by verse through that. But we're gonna take a series and look at the core values of the church. Um, I'm excited about that. I had the amazing opportunity to do a series of interviews with Pastor John Morgan a couple of weeks ago where we just sort of took each one of the core value and I asked Pastor John, like, where did those come from? What were you guys thinking? And what's the heart behind that? I'm excited about this series. It's gonna be a great reminder for us about why we do what we do as a church. Now, until that series begins, we have two weeks. And so I decided that this week, um, specifically, and I'll tell you more later about what I'm gonna talk about next week, but... I decided that this week I wanna talk about what is hands down the most important thing we could ever do as a church. It's, it's more important than any core value. Um, it is the primary core value. Uh, it's more important than chasing lions. It's more important than programs. It's, it's more important than anything we could ever do as a church. And that is keeping Jesus Christ at the center and the aim of Sagemont. Now, when I say that, I, when I say as a church, keeping Jesus at the center of it, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, of course. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory that we need to be keeping Jesus as the center and the aim of our church. I mean, it seems straightforward. We're, we're Christians. This is, a, this is a church full of Christians. Of course, we ought to keep Jesus at the center and the aim of everything we do. But what I'm noticing and what I'm seeing in far too many churches around the country is that Jesus is simply not their priority. In many instances, we see church, churches become like country clubs. They come together in buildings, they have programs for one another and for kids and, and they hang out and, and, and that's awesome and that's beautiful and those are things that they should be doing but those things were never meant to be the primary aim of the church. I think in many instances, churches have become like self-help programs. You know, self-help programs that help you have the good life. You hear sermon after sermon and series after series about five steps to better this or five steps to, to a, a, a great that. And all of those things are so that you can have a better life. And look, all those things are good. All those things are important. But you having a good, easy, better, fun, amazing life was never meant to be the primary aim of the church of Jesus Christ. It's a byproduct of it, but it's not the aim. 
many churches, and I want you to listen to me carefully here. Many churches have become primarily also about social activism. That's sort of their aim. A lot of churches, I've noticed, they're far more interested in social justice on sort of one end of the, of the spectrum. And, and on the other end of the spectrum, they're, they're really into fighting some culture war out there and they care, care more about those things than, than they care about lifting high the purpose and the name of Jesus Christ. And make no mistake, listen, when you read the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, you see the Lord calling his people to fight for justice and to please the cause, or plead the cause rather, of the poor and the widow and the orphan. That's incredibly important. But Sagemont, when you look at the scripture, all those things must be secondary to the lifting high and the exaltation and the worship of the name and the person of Jesus. So I'm gonna spend uh, some time today walking through what is, has been one of the most foundational passages in my ministry um, and my sort of philosophy of church and it's Revelation chapter two. So let's look at it together. Revelation chapter two. Um, we'll get there in just a second, verse one. Let me tell you what's going on here at the beginning of the book of Revelation chapter two. In Revelation two, Jesus is speaking to the seven churches, the New Testament. And what he's essentially doing is he's critiquing them. He, he shares with them things that they're doing well. And then he shares with them sort of areas that they need to improve on or that they're failing at. And then in many instances, Jesus gives the consequences for what's gonna happen to their church if they don't correct these things that they're failing at. And it literally, as I said earlier, it's, it's one of the most haunting verses in the Bible. And, and the reason I say that it's haunting is, I'll tell you why, what Jesus says is the consequences of the Ephesian church is unbelievable, and I fear that we're seeing those consequences played out all over the United States of America. And so let's, let's jump in today with the hope here at Sagemont that we will be different and that while we're never gonna be a perfect church, my aim is that whatever years we have left together, no, that no matter what the culture is doing out there, that we will be a church that lifts high the name of Jesus Christ in here. So Revelation chapter two, verse one, same thing. Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. What he's gonna do is he's gonna give them four things that they're doing well. He's gonna talk about the one thing that they were failing at, and then he's gonna talk about the consequences in the life of the church if they don't fix it. So let's read it. Revelation chapter two, verse one. It says, to the angel, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Jesus says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. And so Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus and the first thing he does is he describes himself. He describes himself and he, he, he begins by saying, I'm the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, which I have no idea what that means. But then he says this and listen carefully. He says, I'm the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says that? 
Well, it's critical. The seven golden lampstands were representative of the seven churches. And so Jesus says, I am, he's literally saying, I'm the one that walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each one of them represents a church. And so what Jesus is literally saying is, I am the one that walks among the churches. He's talking about his presence. He's saying, I am the one whose presence is among the churches. In a very real sense, he is literally saying that he dwells with his presence in the church. And that's, that's critical for us to remember at the end of the sermon when we start looking at the consequences. Then the next thing he does is he points out four things that this young church was doing well. Four things that they were killing it in and crush it in and, and, and it were good things. Let's look, look at it together. Re- Revelation 2, 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus continues. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. So he's speaking to this congregation. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. And he says that you cannot tolerate evil men, but you put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And so if you're, you're taking notes today, here's sort of point number one. The first thing Jesus says that this church is doing well, number one, Jesus says that the church in Ephesus did not tolerate evil men. Jesus was applauding the fact that this was a church that fought for holiness. He was applauding the fact that that if there were people in the church that were divisive, that, that if there were people in the church that were evil, that the church in Ephesus did not tolerate it. And Jesus says, that's a really good thing. Now look at Revelation 2, 2 again. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And then he says this, he says, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you found them to be false. And so point number two here of, of what this church in Ephesus was doing really well, according to Jesus, is that the church at Ephesus cared about sound doctrine. So not only did they care about holiness, not only did they not tolerate evil men in their midst, but this was a church that cared about good theology, They wanted the scriptures to be presented and taught rightly and the gospel message of Jesus to be presented in an accurate way. And Jesus looks at him and says, that's great. That's a good thing. You need to be doing that. And so to the point that if anybody sort of walked up on the scene and said, hey, I'm an apostle, I'm a leader, I got a word from God, they would put him to the test. And if they found him to be false, they would not tolerate it. Jesus says, that's a good thing. So let's look at the third thing that he applauds about their church. Look at at, uh, verse three. She said, and you have perseverance. That's a key word. He said, you have perseverance and you have endured for my namesake. You've endured for my namesake and you have not grown weary. It's a point number three. The third thing that Jesus sort of points out that they're doing well as a church is this. Jesus is saying that the church at Ephesus lived their lives on mission for Jesus. So let's look at the verse one more time. Jesus says, and you have perseverance and you've endured for my namesake and you've not grown weary. That word perseverance is key. It's a word that means labor. And it was commonly used back in the day during that time to describe um, someone that was carrying a water pot on their head. 
Um, and so back in the day, you didn't have water faucets. You, you, you didn't have water, running water in the home. And so if you wanted water, you had to get a big clay pot and carry it down to the well in the middle of town. And then you filled it up and then you put that thing on your back or you put it on your head and you walk back to your house. And that picture of this person that is carrying the weight of the water and enduring under the weight and not growing weary carrying the water is the word picture that Jesus uses. He says, look, I see that you're enduring. I see that you're carrying the weight what is it that they were carrying the weight of? Look at the text again. He said, you're, you're enduring for my name's sake. Jesus said, I see the fact that you're enduring, that you're carrying, that you're working for the name's sake of Jesus. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the great commission. In other words, guys, this was a church that was living their lives every day on mission for Jesus. This was not a group of people that just showed up on Sunday and sang some songs and listened to a sermon and just went and lived their lives. But these were people that literally were living proof of a loving God to a watching world. They were doing it. They didn't talk about it. They did it. And Jesus says, I see you. I see you carrying the weight of my name into the world and it's a good thing. Now, turn to verse six because he tells them one final thing that they're doing well as a church. In verse six, he says, yet this you do have. It's a strong statement by Jesus here. He says, this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So you don't hear that verse too often in Sunday school. Jesus says he hates something. So here's point number four, the fourth thing that Jesus says they're doing well. Jesus says this, he said, the church in Ephesus was salt and light to a lost world. Fourth thing he says he, they're doing well, the church at Ephesus was salt and light to a, to a lost world. He said, here's what I like about you. Number four, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Now, when I was reading this for the first time, reading this first time years ago, I thought, what in the world were these Nicolaitans doing that Jesus Christ said he hates what they're doing? We need to find out. Jesus hates something, I wanna know it. And so here's what we're doing. I did some re here's what they were doing. I, I, I did some research on this. And listen carefully. The Nicolaitan church was a church that was trying to reach the culture by being like the culture. In other words, they were, they were trying to reach their city and sort of the main thing they were doing in order to reach their city was, was they were trying to be culturally relevant. And we've seen churches all across the United States again over the last three decades try so hard to do this. We've, we've seen so many churches that, that try to reach the culture by being cool by being culturally relevant. And look, listen, carefully, there's some merit to that. There is some merit to that. I'm gonna talk more about it um, in, in the coming weeks because one of Sagemont's core values is on the website, go look it up, is that we're gonna be relevant. And so obviously there's some positive things about seeking to be relevant. We wanna be intentional about sharing the gospel in a way that a culture understands it and can receive it. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that in an attempt to present the gospel in a culturally relevant way, too many churches lose the gospel in the process. 
So many churches are worried about, they're so worried about being cool and they're so worried about not offending people that you, ne- you never hear them talk about sin. They're, they're, they're trying so hard to be nice and, and, and make people feel comfortable that they never talk about repentance. They're, they're trying so hard to be culturally relevant that they stop talking about Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection. You never hear them speak about obedience to God. You, don't, you never hear them talking about suffering for Christ or hell. And I can go on and on, but that's what the church, the Galatia was doing. Again, listen, this is it. They wanted so badly to be like the culture that they stopped being salt and liked in the culture, okay? And Jesus said, I hate that. It's a strong statement. So let's recap real quick. Everything Jesus said that they were doing well as a church. Point number one, the church at Ephesus did not tolerate evil men. Number two, the church at Ephesus cared about sound doctrine. Point number three, the church at Ephesus lived their lives on mission for the name of Jesus. And number four, the church at Ephesus was salt and light to a lost world. They did not bend so far to the culture that they stopped being salt and light in the culture. Now, here's what hit me. First time I ever preached on this years ago, there's something that just hit me out of, out of the blue as I was studying all these things that they'd done well. Here's what hit me, guys. This sounds like, a, this sounds like an amazing church. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This church sounds like it's amazing. I, I, if I moved into a town, I wasn't a pastor, and I just moved into town, and somebody told me, hey, there's a church here in town, and they value personal holiness, and they fight for sound doctrine, And guess what? These people are awesome, man. They're not a Christian country club. They're living their lives on mission for Jesus. And on top of that, they're preaching the Bible. And they're standing on the word of God and the inerrancy of the scripture. And they're they're being salt and light in the culture no matter what. Guess what, church? I'm going to that church. I'm checking them out that Sunday. Sounds like an amazing place. But then, after all those things that Jesus applauds and he says, you guys are doing so amazing, Jesus said, there's one thing. Despite all the things you're doing so well, Jesus said, there's one thing where you're completely dropping the ball. And it's this, look at Revelation 2.4. In Revelation 2.4, Jesus speaking. He said, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Jesus said, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Jesus says, that is great that you don't tolerate evil men. I love that. Jesus said, I, I love the fact that you, that you fight for sound doctrine. Jesus said, that is amazing that you're not bending to the culture so much that you've stopped being 
salt and light and the culture, all those things are amazing. But Jesus looks at them and one of the most haunting things that's in all the scripture and he says, all those things are great, but somewhere along the way, you walked away from the one thing that is more important than any other thing. And Jesus says, what you've walked away from is you've, you've walked away being in love with me. You've walked away from the primary and most important thing in the life of your church being loving Jesus Christ. So I want you to hear this. Matter of fact, if anything I've said this far, I want you to hear this. This was a great church. And this was a church that was doing all these things for Jesus. But somewhere along the way of doing all these things for Jesus, they missed Jesus. And it's really easy to do. It's easier than you think. I've seen it happen in my own life. Jesus captured my heart, like captured it in a way that I've never gotten over in the winter of 1993. And I went through a season in my life where hands down the, the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus. And my relationship with him was the single most important thing in my entire life. I remember not being able to wait to get up on Sunday morning and go to church. I'm a college kid. I'm a freshman in college. And I remember not being able to wait. It was totally different when I was in high school. My mom had to drag me out of bed. I couldn't wait to get to church. I spent hours in the word. It wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna do my quiet time today because I got to. It's like, I just couldn't wait to get up and open up a Bible and hear from you. I remember carrying on this sort of running conversation with the Lord. It was just all day, just talking to God and, and trying to listen to him. I call it my first love phase because he was the single most important thing in my life. I, I cared more about him than any other thing. And, and here's the thing, in those early days of, of my relationship with Jesus, everything that I did for Jesus, it came out of an overflow of my love for Jesus. But then somewhere along the way, it's not always this way, but somewhere along the way, I started noticing something. I got into the ministry and it hit me one day that, man, I'm getting up and I'm going to church. Not out of this incredible overflow of my relationship with Jesus that week, but I'm getting up and I'm going to church because it's my job. And I found myself, I was like, man, I'm reading the Bible because that's what I have to do to prepare a sermon. And I found myself, I would share my faith and I'd witness to people. But I noticed it really did have more to do at times with the fact that that's just what good Christians did. More than, hey, I, I, I've got to tell this person about the love of my life. I didn't mean to, guys, it was really subtle but I stopped serving Jesus out of an overflow of my relationship with Jesus and I just sort of went through the motions. Now what's interesting is very similar to the church in Ephesus is that you could have looked at me externally. Anyone that sort of looked at my life as I was doing all those things, they would say, man, this is a guy that's absolutely in love with Jesus. Because of my outward actions and outward appearances, you would have thought that I'm desperately in love with the Lord. But at the end of the day, there were times when I'm doing all those things, but my heart had drifted away from Jesus. 
And that's exactly what's happened here at the church in Ephesus. Doing all this stuff, doing all the right things, but their hearts had drifted away from their first love. Now here's a question. How big of a deal is that to a church? How big of a deal is that to Jesus for the church? If you've got a church that's doing all these things really, really well, they're crushing it, good doctrine, personal holiness, not been into the culture in an inappropriate way, but their hearts are far from God, how, far from Christ. How big of a deal is it to Jesus? Well, I want you to see what Jesus said were the consequences of this church for walking away from their first love. Look at verse five. Verse five, Jesus said, therefore remember from where you have fallen. He said, I want you to remember what you used to be like. He said, and repent, turn around. Do the deeds you did at first. And then he says the haunting part. He says, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. As a pastor of a church, that is, as a pastor, that, that's probably number one, most haunting verse for me as a pastor in the whole Bible. It scares the mess out of me. And here's why. Jesus says, guys, if you don't come back to your first love, if you don't come back to the place where all the stuff you're doing is coming out of an overflow of your love for me, if your love for Jesus is not the most defining thing about you and your church, Jesus said, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. What does that mean? And why is that scary? And why is that haunting? Well, here it is. You remember Jesus says that I'm the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus says, I'm the one whose presence is among and walking among the church. And so what Jesus just told the church is that if you don't come back to the place where I am your first love, if you don't come back to the place with everything you're doing is an overflow out of your love for me, he says, I'm gonna remove your lampstand from its place. And, and Sage Mont, here's what that means. What Jesus is literally saying, Jesus is saying that if I'm not your first love, I'm gonna remove the blessing of my presence from your church. I'm gonna remove the blessing of my presence from your church. Now we know God is everywhere all the time, but there is a special, unique way that he manifests his presence where he chooses. And Jesus says, I don't care what you're doing. If I'm not your first love, I'm not gonna have any part of it. And I wanna tell you why for me that is, as a pastor, the most haunting verse in the Bible, and here it is. Because guys, I can't think, I cannot think of a more pointless thing in all the world than going to a church that Jesus doesn't have any part of. I, I, I can't think of a bigger waste of time 
than being a part of a church where the presence of the living God is not there. Because preaching that is devoid of the presence of God is nothing more than a motivational speech. Worship that is devoid of the presence of God is nothing more than a concert. Christian small groups that are devoid of the presence of God is nothing more than a supper club. Mission trips that are devoid of the presence of God is nothing more than social activism. Sagemont, listen, experiencing the manifest presence of the living God is what makes church worth doing. And if Jesus isn't gonna be here, then I don't want any part of it. I, I, some of you guys know this and, and some of you don't, but, but it's just a personal ministry of mine in my own time in Austin. I coach football, coach high school football. I was the offensive coordinator for my son's private school. Won three state championships in four years. I got skills. But I'm telling you right now, and I want you to listen to me really, really carefully what I'm about to say. I don't want you to email me about this because I want you to listen carefully. If Jesus isn't here, I'd much rather coach football. But if he is here, if his presence is showing up, and blessing us. There is nothing in this world I'd rather do than be in this church in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so I want to end today with this. Three quick points and we're going to be done. I want to end today by talking about how we as a church can keep Jesus as our first love so that his presence and his blessing will always go before us and be a part of what we're doing I think this applies for us together as a church and I think it applies for us as individuals. So listen carefully. Here's the first thing we can do, point number one, of how we can keep Jesus at the center of our church and keep him as our first love. Number one, we need to be people that follow the message, not the messenger. We need to be people that follow the message of Jesus Christ, not the messenger that's bringing the message of Jesus Christ. And one of the primary ways that I've seen churches sort of lose their first love for Jesus is they become man-centered instead of Christ-centered. It's easy to do. In other words, they become more devoted to the messenger that's presenting Jesus than, they, than they're devoted to the person of Jesus himself. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. Go ahead and look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. We're going to look at a couple of texts here. First Corinthians chapter three, verse three, Paul's speaking to the church in Corinth. He starts off with a strong statement. He said, for you are still in the flesh. You're still of the flesh. Strong statement. For people that are filled with the spirit of God, he says, you're not acting like people filled with the spirit of God. You're acting like people of the flesh. He said, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, there's jealousy and there's strife among you. Are you not um, of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And so there's strife in the church. There's strife in the church. And Paul says, you guys are acting like you're made of flesh, that you don't have the spirit. You're acting like lost people. How are they in the flesh? How are they acting like lost people? He tells them in verse four, 1 Corinthians 3, 4. He says, for one says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. Paul says, are you not being 
merely human. And so he's saying, look, Paul says, you've fallen into factions in your church. Some of you in the church are saying, I'm, I'm for Paul, man. He's my guy. He's the guy I'm following. And there's another group of people that are like, no, 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 no. I'm not a Paul guy. I'm more of an Apollos guy. He's my guy. I like his preaching. I like his teaching. He's the guy. I'm following him. And they lost their first love because they were more focused on the messenger than they were the message and the person of Jesus. Now look at the last thing he says here in verse five. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And then he tells them who Apollos and Paul are. He says, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And so what Paul just said is, look, here's who Apollos is. Here's who I am all in the world. We are our instruments that God used to speak to you. Paul is reminding the church that the hero of your story is not some man, but the hero of your story is God. So get your eyes off a man and get your eyes on God. He's the hero of your story. And so church, if we're gonna be a church where Jesus is our first love, we have to be so careful that we don't ever, ever, ever elevate any man above Jesus. We can't be people that are like, hey, I'm, I'm John Morgan people, or I'm, I'm a Matt Carter kind of guy, or I'm a, I'm a Chuck Snyder follower, or I'm a Freeman Tomlin guy, or a Stuart Rothberg guy. I'm a, I follow fill in the blank. We can't do that. When we do that, the scripture says we are being in the flesh. Messengers come and go, but the message never changes. And yes, while God puts leaders in our life, our primary allegiance must be to Jesus Christ. So quickly, second thing we can do to keep Jesus as our first love and this is a big one. And this, this has to do more individually. You need to often remind yourself. You need to often remind yourself of the beginning of your calling. In order to keep Jesus at the center of, of your ministry and the center of what you're doing as a believer, something that I've learned and I try to do it often is I often remind myself of the beginning of my calling and not calling into the ministry, but the beginning of my calling of Jesus calling me to himself. There's a song that came out in the 90s. I think it was by the Newsboys. Um, it was called Let It Rain. And it was a song that was sung from the perspective of Peter. It's a really cool song. Sung from the perspective of Peter and Peter was in a jail cell. He was about to die. He was about to be crucified and give his life for Jesus. And as the song goes, it starts to rain. And he sees the rain outside of his jail cell through the window and there's a line in the song that says this. This is Peter singing. And he said, water still reminds me of the seaside where our eyes first met. He sees water, he's about to die. And he said, that water reminds me of the seaside where our eyes first met. It was, it was a great song. He was saying this, that as Peter saw that water, he, he went back to the beginning of his calling. And in that moment, when he's about to give his life for Jesus, he remembered the moment when he was standing there on the beach, doing his thing, going about his life, minding his own business, and all of a sudden, this man named Jesus from Nazareth came walking up, and their eyes met each other's for the first time. And in that moment, where Peter saw Jesus for the first time, all Peter knew is that he was gonna follow Jesus for the rest of his life. I think that's what we've gotta do. 
if you're a Christian here today, there was a moment in your life that that happened. If you're a believer, there was a moment in your life where you were going through life, you were doing your thing, but you looked up one day in some place, sometime, something, and there was Jesus. And in that moment, when your eyes met him for the first time, and he said, come follow me, and you said, yes. And all you knew in that moment is none of this stuff matters as long as I get to follow him. We gotta go back to that place. To keep Jesus as our first love, we gotta go back to the beach. We have to often go back to that moment where he captured our heart for the first time and remember what you felt. Remember what you said. Remember what you promised. Remember how he made you new. And if you'll do that, if you'll go back to that place, to that moment, and you'll do it often, I promise you, he will win your heart over and over and over and over again. So number one, we follow the message, not the messenger. Number two, we remind ourselves of the beginning of our calling. And here's the last one. You keep your eyes fixed on the end of your calling. So the final thing we can do to be people that keep Jesus as our first love is we need to often remind ourselves at sort of the end of our ministry here on earth, the end of, of this time that we have being Christ followers. And I love this picture of, of this happening in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter one. Don't turn there. I want you to just listen. You've got John, the disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved. And he's been exiled to the island of Patmos and he's old at this time. He's probably 80 years old, maybe 90. And he's at the end of his ministry. He's at the very end of his life. And then one day he has a vision of Jesus. He has a vision of his oldest and dearest friend. But when he sees this vision of Jesus on this day, Jesus is radically different than how he remembered him from all those years ago. Let me read it to you, this vision that John has of his best friend, Revelation 1.12. John said, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Watch what it says in Revelation 13. 113, it says, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. John says, I see the churches, I see the lampstands, and in the middle of them, there's, there's this one that looks like Jesus. But he was different. He's clothed with, long, with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. John said the hairs of his head were white, like, like white wool, like snow. He's just, he's just keep describing, he's like, it's the whitest thing I've ever seen in my life. He said his eyes were like a flame of fire. He's like, it looked like Jesus, but his eyes were on fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. He's like, he would talk and it was like the, the waters were roaring in a waterfall. 
In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. What did John do when he saw his old friend again? Was he like, hey, what's up, Jesus? Verse 17, John said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and I'm the last. So here's John, he's 90 years old. He's alone on an island and he sees his best friend and he recognizes him. It was Jesus, but he's different. He looked way different than how he remembered him. Because this time when he saw Jesus, he was wearing a white robe. His, his hair was brilliantly white. His eyes were on fire. Out of his mouth came a sword. And his face was shining like the son of man. Yes, this was the Jesus that John laid his head in his lap on, uh, in the Last Supper. But here when he saw Jesus, he didn't look like, uh, just like Jesus. He looked like God. And he threw himself on the ground because it hit him in this fresh and powerful way that Jesus was everything he said he was. And so guys, here's the thing I want you to hear. Jesus is my best friend. He is my best friend. He is the love of my life. Nothing even comes close. But there have been times in my life where my love has waned or it's grown cold. And when that happens, I remember the beginning of my calling to him. And I remind myself of the end of my calling. That there's coming a day where all this stuff is over. Drama, pandemics, war, strife, Twitter, it's all going to hell. And we're gonna see Jesus in all his glory. And when that day comes, it's gonna be worth it. And so until that day comes, what else can we do but give him our heart. If we're gonna be a church that Jesus wants us to be, myself and you, we've gotta lay all this stuff down that's keeping our hearts from him. And let's put him first. And let's watch him move. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm, I'm reminded after sermons like this where it's so crystal clear in your word what place you're meant to be in my life. But I'm also reminded that I just, I can't do it apart from you. And so I tell you, Lord, I need you to come take your rightful place in me.
I don't want to do ministry another day in the flesh. I don't want to be a part of a church for one more day if you're not here. So we say, Jesus, we want you. We need you. We don't want to be a part of this without you. So let us be a people that love you and love you first. I ask that in Jesus' name.